Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mission Daily. On this episode, Andy McMillan, CEO of User Testing, an on-demand insight platform that allows executives to receive feedback in real time, joined the program and discussed how his early days at Oracle and Salesforce helped prepare him for his role as CEO, the importance of fostering a culture of organizational empathy, and why your job as CEO is not to run the business. Enjoy. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Andy, we like to kick off every show by getting to know a little bit about you. And I'm particularly curious about your origins. Uh, where'd you grow up at? Uh, I moved around a bunch in the Midwest. I was born in Niagara Falls, but uh, I mostly grew up in the Detroit area. Okay, cool. Yeah, my uh, dad's family's from Ohio, south of Cleveland a little bit. So, yeah, I'm familiar with the uh, Midwest and uh, northern parts of the country there. Um, would you get into when you were in Detroit? Any big passions or interests early on? Or what was life like there? Yeah, I was big into sports. So we were uh, we were an auto industry family. My dad worked at, uh, at GM and, and then at EDS. And that's kind of why we, we moved all over the, the Midwest into plant towns. But through all of that, uh, I'm the oldest of four boys in a six-year span. So pretty close together with, with my brothers. And we were all hockey players. So I played a whole lot of ice hockey. I still play ice hockey uh, when we're not under shelter in place quarantine, I get out and play some hockey and, uh, and golf and sports. And just, that was most of growing up was, was sports in school. I love it. And when you were playing sports, when you were younger, is there anything that you took away from sports that you still apply in business, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, or you think that, uh, really helped give you an edge in business? I think there's a couple things that you learn from sports and I'm big into sports with, with my kids and the experiences that that brings. I think, um, it's a rather unique environment, I feel like, for young people and kids to have something you can work at and see such clear progress um, where you can face adversity. I mean, you think of the, what felt like big moments when you were a kid, you know, you, the, you know, puck on your stick with a, you know, not a lot of time left in the game or something down by a goal. You know, those are kind of pressure moments that are kind of, I think, hard to create for kids in other circumstances as much. And so you learn to deal with you know, success and disappointment. You learn to be part of a team. You learn to kind of, you know, manage how to work well together, how to, how to overcome even disappointment in teammates and things like that and having to regroup and come back the next week and play again. So I think those are really important life lessons. And, and I'm sure there are other ways to get those life lessons. I'm not saying it's only sports, but I think they're a great vehicle for, for learning how to, you know, be part of a team, to be a leader, to, you know, go through adversity. Um, I think those are important life lessons that you carry with you the rest of your life. Yeah, for sure. So what brought you out to, I know you're in Berlin game or thereabouts now, uh, what brought you out to the Bay area? So, uh, I was with a software company called Stellant, which was a content management company that did uh, web and document management that was based out of Minneapolis, which is where, uh, my wife and I lived while she was going to law school there. And, um, Oracle had acquired that business. And things in my personal life had changed. Uh, my wife and I had uh, had our first kid and she was no longer working at the law firm that she was working at. And I was shuttling out to the Bay Area almost every other week. And after a few months of that, it was like, you know, maybe maybe we should move and, you know, I could be part of the kids' lives while they grow up too. And so that made a lot of sense. And so uh, we kind of picked up and moved out here, gosh, probably a decade ago now, um, you know, for tech jobs, but the main reason just being I wanted to be close to family while working in tech, and this seemed like the best place to be doing that. Yeah, it definitely is. 
when you were getting established out here uh, around a decade ago, did you uh, join Salesforce right away? What was your uh, evolution like career-wise there? Now, I spent, um, I want to say five years at, at Oracle, and I think I spent the first probably year and a half of that uh, in the Midwest kind of shuttling out. Um, and then, sh- like I said, shortly after my son was born, moved out here, um, but worked for Oracle for, I want to say about three and a half years while I was out here before uh, going over to Salesforce. And I think it was something that I don't think I fully understood the uh, dynamics of the ecosystem out here when I first moved out here. I mean, I was just kind of moving out here to be closer to to my family and not having to be on the road traveling. And it wasn't until I'd been out here for, for a few years and you start to realize just how small the tech community can be if you start to think about, you know, really how is. many... B2B product managers are there that sell enterprise scale products. And I mean, even if you start to get to hundreds, that's not that many people. You pretty quickly realize you're only a you know a degree or two separated from everybody. And that's when the kind of dynamics of living out here really take effect. And that's um, you know, not too long after that's when I took an opportunity to go over to Salesforce. Very cool. And when you were transitioning over to Salesforce, uh, what was the culture like at Oracle? And then what type of culture did you find when you uh, arrived at Salesforce? How were they different? Well, they were very different size companies back then. I think when I joined Salesforce, it was 6,000 people, which is not a small company by any stretch, but Oracle was massive. I think, you know, we had already done the Sun acquisition at that point. So it was a, you know, a very, very large company. I think like all large companies, my view on large companies is no matter how top down they can be, they end up being a collection of smaller companies in some ways. Um, so I worked in a in a group uh, that was called Fusion Middleware. It was run by Thomas Curran at the time, who is now the Google Cloud CEO. Um, I think he's a phenomenal leader. I really enjoyed working in that group. I got a lot of leeway from Thomas to just kind of go get stuff done and, and solve problems. But it was still a big transition going to Salesforce. It's a very different culture. But I've talked before uh, about how it's very interesting that when I went over to Salesforce, I was one of the kind of early Oracle people over there. But over the last you know, five to 10 years, a lot of people who are Oracle alumni have gone to work over at Salesforce. I just think the business model of SaaS has a better incentive structure in terms of being more customer centric. You need the customer to renew for the business model to make sense. So I saw some of the most, you know, hard nosed driven, you know, sales number centric people that came over from Oracle that I felt like had fairly sharp elbows pretty quickly become extremely customer centric in the Salesforce model, and I, I would argue probably Oracle's gone through that same transition internally now being more cloud-centric as well, simply because the business model and success dictates that you're more aligned with your customer. I think that's one of the big uh, benefits of the SaaS business model is you can still be very goal-driven and have your goals lined up more closely with your customers. And so I felt like in some ways that culture um, was a fantastic culture, but I think it was a great culture in some ways because the business model helped it be such a great culture. Yeah. And when you were taking those learnings and getting involved in your next journey, uh, the next project, um, I'm curious, what was that? And then how did you make your way to become the CEO of user testing? Yeah, I had a pretty interesting route uh, to, to do that. I was running, I went into Salesforce to run a, um, a business that had been acquired and then had kind of struggled a little bit in kind of finding its footing inside Salesforce. And that was the data.com business. Uh, what I loved about running that was it was a completely standalone PL because it was this acquired business. So um, I went over to run products and was promoted to being the general manager of that business. And it was like being a, you know, a CEO um, inside this much bigger company because I was, you know, running everything from my own data center, setting my own sales team reporting to me, which was a really fascinating experience for, 
from being a product manager where, you know, as the adage goes, you're kind of responsible for everything, but in charge of nobody as a product manager. It was interesting to be like, oh, I actually like have an organization that goes and gets stuff done. Uh, so I love that. Uh, but the entire model for building success in that group was to get it um, scaled and running well and integrated into the sales cloud business, kind of the Salesforce automation core business of Salesforce, um, and then integrate it back into that business. And so in some ways, you know, not an uncommon story, success was to work myself out of running a standalone business unit and then to take a larger kind of functional role in the company. So I did that for about a year as the COO of the product group, but really wanted to get back to running an organization like I was doing at, at data.com. And so for me, that meant looking outside of the company and into, uh, into CEO roles. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of how I made the transition from, uh, from being a product guy to a general manager to, to being a, a CEO. Um, prior to being at user testing, I spent um, just shy of three years at Acton Software, which is a marketing automation company based in Portland. Um, that was a company that, you know, had run uh, kind of a business model that was pretty challenged. It was a month-to-month business model and, and just kind of didn't really have the kind of SaaS revenue dynamics that I think make SaaS companies so successful. So um, spent the better part of three years kind of moving that to an annual business model, um, kind of getting refocused on our customers, and then ultimately made the decision that uh, we wanted to consolidate that business into Portland where the engineering team was based. It had really gotten too spread out before I'd gotten there. They were in, I think, 10 locations around the world. Um, but only 400 employees. That's so pretty spread out. Um, and then Portland wasn't the place for me because my family's here in, uh, in the Bay Area, uh, which is where we started this story, which is why I moved out here. Uh, and so at that point, um, you know, the, the CFO who's based in Portland um, stepped into the CEO role uh, and I uh, moved over to user testing uh, after spending a lot of time with the founder and, and really being excited about the business and about the opportunity and kind of really what the, the ethos of the challenge we're trying to solve really spoke to me. Uh, and so now I've been the CEO at, at user testing for uh, coming up on uh, two years here. So two years into the role, what are some of the takeaways or are there any stories you like to share about some of your proudest moments uh, so far? I spent the first part of my career, I think, just working on really hard product problems. I think that was what was really interesting to me. Um, you know, one of the things I I share with folks that ask me about career success and, you know, being able to be a fairly young uh, CEO, you know, you get questions like, how'd you, how'd you get to this job at this point? Um, And one of the things I talk about is, you know, I don't think the path to success is by always trying to cherry pick the easiest assignments or even the most visible assignments. Um, You know, one of the interview questions I really like is tell me when you've been wildly successful, but significantly under-resourced. And I think that's one of the things that really separates being successful in mid-management to senior management. You know, it's one thing to successfully run the project that the CEO of the company has said is the number one project in the company and you have unlimited resources. Like that's, that's hard and important. Again, you were given all the resources of a large company to make that happen. It's another to say, hey, I'm running this thing and it's been a problem and I've gotten creative and, and you know, we didn't have all the resources in the world, but we've really shifted the business and now things are growing. Um, and I think, you know, that was my, I believe, reputation at Oracle was, was going into working on hard things and hard problems and, and getting good outcomes. It was one of the big things I went over to Salesforce to go do. As I said, it was kind of a, a challenged acquisition um, where some of the original thesis on the acquisition maybe hadn't come to bear the way the company had wanted. I find that really intellectually interesting, you know, working on something that, that is hard and, and kind of has to be untangled and, and put back together. Um, but I also find as you get 
you know, kind of through that middle management tier, that's what senior leaders notice. They notice, hey, here's a person who, you know, I, I didn't give them all the resources in the world. And maybe it wasn't my number one priority because I was focused on this other thing. But now this turned into a really good business. And it wasn't because everybody came and said, here's, a, here's everything you need. It was us proving that we can make something really successful that maybe hadn't been previously. And I really enjoy that. And I think that's been a, a big positive in my career that that's just something I've been naturally drawn to. Yeah. And that, that's something too, that uh, those experiences and those moments just can't be replicated. And I think the type of camaraderie or culture that you build in the aftermath of realizing, okay, we had uh, 10x less resources than our uh, closest competitor who was trying to do the same thing, yet we still pulled it off. That's the type of thing that you just, uh, that esprit de corps, um, you can't get it any other way, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I used to tell my, uh, my team at Oracle, I mean, our MO was, you know, the meeting that everybody wants to go to, let's avoid that meeting right? Where you got all the eager beavers putting their hands up trying to get on the pet project. Let's go to the meeting nobody wants to go to about some hard problem. But if one of our senior leaders is calling a meeting around this because it needs to get solved, like let's show up and fix that problem. And, you know, that gets noticed over time. I, th- I think that is a, a great way to build a team. It's a great way to build a kind of a work ethic around solving real problems. Um, and you build really interesting skills. I mean, my my uh, role at Acton was not an easy CEO job, I think, to go into a company that was, you know, needing to really change aspects of its business model. But I learned a ton. I probably learned a lot more than if you went to something where it's like, yeah, you know, all the dials are at 10 and this thing's, you know, taken off. That's a great experience, but it's not a great way to learn things. What was your biggest takeaway from Acton when you went from the month to month to transitioning to the annualized, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, subscriptions? How did you persuade and how did you help move the market to an annualized uh, contract? The biggest takeaway for that was really just putting the infrastructure in place to go do it. Um, You know, we were a marketing automation product. People don't roll out marketing automation for a quarter and then turn it back off. And so in a weird way, it wasn't that hard to go to a customer and say, look, you're putting a platform in place that's supposed to last you, you know, a decade. So you know, paying for it monthly doesn't make a whole lot of sense necessarily. Now, if you have cash flow concerns or something like that, and that's really selling to a much lower end of the segment than we were selling into. Um, but just going in and being upfront, like, yeah, this is a platform for the future. Uh, we're going to invest in it together. You're going to invest in it. We're going to invest in it. You know, we're going to come in and make it successful. Um, I think that was a um, just kind of a, a step we had to take. I would also say, you know, maybe the biggest learning overall for me at Acton was, um, and maybe you, know, you hear a lot of senior leaders talk about this, but I think it's something it really takes time to internalize is um, there was almost never a decision I wished I had waited to make. Um, you know, the old adage that if it's a really hard decision, then you're picking between either two equally good things or two equally bad things, you should pick one. And if it's an easy decision, you should just make the decision. That really has proven to be true in my experience, maybe even more so than when I was a product manager. And I think as a product manager, you're you're managing a lot of stakeholders, but as I said, not everybody really works for you. Um, and so you can kind of operate a little bit more in the gray area. I think when you're a CEO, really paid to make decisions. You don't run any part of the company. You have leaders that run parts of the company. Your job is to make decisions and to make them clearly, to make them, I wouldn't say quickly, but at least efficiently is maybe the right answer. Like if I'm not going to have substantially better information about something in the foreseeable future, then make a decision. And I think that, you know, kind of situation really taught me that that's critically important as a senior leader. Definitely. And so let's jump over to user testing for a moment. So I think that it's uh, easy to assume that we know how our users are using a product or service or a landing page or 
uh, product, but in reality, what they're thinking about and the voice concerns that they have or, uh, you know, getting a video of them reacting to something is is really difficult. And it's kind of at the forefront of everybody's mind, right? Like is honest customer feedback. That's the uh, holy grail for iterating a product. So what does user testing do and uh, where are you all at in this journey? Yeah, we're really in the business of trying to help bring customer empathy into companies. What our product does is allow you to have a set of participants, so people that have opted in, um, go through and use your product while you can view the experience. And what our participants do is they also narrate their thoughts while they go through it. So you could say, uh, I don't know, I'm a retailer and I would like to target a new segment, which would be you know, maybe recently divorced men who are of a certain age and a certain, you know, economic status, but haven't really shopped for themselves traditionally. You could go into our platform, select that that's the audience you want to test with, write a test, you know, hey, go to, go to my retail website and shop for a blue blazer or whatever it would be. Um, those participants will then go to your website, their screens are recorded, they narrate their experience. So you'll hear them go to your homepage and say, you know, I really normally shop for myself. I haven't done this in a while. You know, here's what I would do. I would search or I would click this. And you're listening to them kind of talk about what that experience is like. And what's important about that is it's not functional testing necessarily. We're not testing, does your website work? We're testing the fact that the team may be building your retail site. Uh, maybe your product and merchandising team skews heavily female. Maybe your engineering team skews heavily male, but much, much younger. How do they have the empathy to understand what it's like to be, in my example, a um, you know 50-year-old recently divorced uh, man who's shopping for himself for the first time in a while, right? Or whatever that demographic is. I have a, a friend who lives near here who's the CMO of a company that makes direct-to-consumer hearing aids, right? How does his engineering team, who are not necessarily folks who are suffering from hearing loss, understand what it's like to be that audience? How does a pricing team at a cell phone provider where the you know, pricing team, the average age is 55 and they skew heavily male, sell cell phone plans to newly married females? That's their target demo. And, and so it's that idea that you want to have that empathy. You want to understand what it's like to be that customer. And it's really challenging in today's day and age because we don't actually see our customers that much anymore. We think of our mobile experiences is making us so much closer to our customer. But the reality is we've kind of been disintermediated from our customers in some way by technology, right? You don't even have to talk to the barista anymore when you go in to buy a latte. So how do these companies build intuition about their customers and, and really understand what their customer needs are if they don't ever actually talk to them? Yeah. And I think that with all the social distancing going on right now, the customer and people are just becoming so far removed that it's becoming apparent just how little interaction that we've had on a day-to-day -day basis um, and getting that empathy there. There's really no other way to do it than interacting with whoever you're trying to serve in some capacity on a daily basis. So are there any uh, customer success stories or examples of how an organization kind of goes from being maybe lacking empathy to really embracing it and understanding the customer in a whole new way? Yeah, it's, it's one of the big uh, changes we've frankly seen in the last uh, probably 18 months of our business, whereas traditionally we were used by a, a group often called a UX researcher, you know, uh, which is an amazing profession, really interesting folks doing really interesting work. But it was a think of it like a project, like go look at the usability of this website or you know, help us understand how our customers use this product. And what's really shifted is 
Um, now we're seeing top-down executives saying, you know, I want my team to have more exposure to our customers. Um, we have one large tech company who's a customer of ours. Uh, one of the really big tech companies is creating a concept of making sure that every one of their employees who builds or markets a product um, has an experience on our platform where they watch the end user use that product at least once a month. I find it somewhat fascinating because the idea that the, the improvement is to once a month watch somebody use the product you spend your whole life building. But when you take a step back and think about it, it's actually pretty common that the you know, people building our products, they, they use the product maybe themselves. They, you know, they, they dog food it internally and they, you know, no people like themselves use the product, but how often do they really get outside of their circle and see somebody um, that maybe is a substantially different user than them actually experience their product? It's just not that often. And so that's the kind of mission we're on to change. And so I think that level of scaling is super interesting. Um, we're also seeing companies do things like, you know, they'll create an empathy hour where they'll take a highlight reel of a set of videos collected and interviews collected on our platform. And they'll actually, you know, create a happy hour around it and get employees together and actually watch. What's it like to be a customer of ours, right? What's it like for people with different experiences and knowledge levels and backgrounds and, and preconceived notions to be using our platform? And it's really empowering. The other thing I find so fascinating is how many companies come back and tell us it's very motivating because very few people in the world want to create a bad customer experience, right? There's this great Capgemini study where they said 75% of companies believe they create a great experience, but 30% of consumers believe the brands they work with create a great experience. We actually call that the empathy gap here at user testing, that if the people at those companies were able to see and experience and feel what those customers feel, they would make changes to create that great experience but because they don't, they just don't know. They're missing that connection with the customer to really understand how they're not hitting the mark. So when it comes to executives, what senior executive uh, do you feel is responsible for closing that empathy gap? Is it the chief product officer or what type of uh, role titles are you, uh, are you, do you find are most uh, you know, gravitating towards your product? Well, the one we're seeing really at the top level drive it is we're seeing CEOs. I mean, even at public Fortune 500 companies coming out and saying one of their, you know, two or three big initiatives of the year is either, you know, customer understanding, customer focus, customer empathy, those kinds of things, which again, I think we've said that for a long time as senior leaders. But what we're seeing now is this realization that the way they do that has to change. It can't just be that they're going to, you know, post the net promoter score on the wall in the lunchroom or whatever. It needs to be actionable. So I think, you know, at a CEO level, we're seeing senior executives say, I need to drive a customer obsession into my entire company. And one of the ways to do that is to let people see our customers interact with our products. We're definitely seeing it in product organizations where chief product officers or, you know, chief design officers are really engaging with the platform. And then one of the big areas we're seeing a large uptick is in marketing, where we're seeing CMOs kind of want to balance the metrics-driven view of how they've been doing marketing with more of a uh, customer insight, customer intuition view of how they're doing marketing. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think it's particularly interesting that CEOs are adopting this. Like, it's no surprise, right? It's uh, knowledge that a CEO is, uh, an empathetic CEO should be craving. Um, when you are thinking about marketing to or reaching CEOs, what strategies are you employing and uh, how are you getting the word out about user testing? Well, for us, it, it, it's really um, 
you know, doing as we say. I mean, we spend a lot of time as a field team talking about what our customers are going through. We spend time on our platform talking to those customers and bringing that information back and showing it to our team, um, trying to understand what is it that these, you know, CEOs, CMOs, what challenges do they face in their business? And often a lot of it is trying to create urgency around the customer is really what we talk about, right? Which is, again, I think most people um, care about what they do for a living and they want to create a great experience, but yet, you know, it, especially at these larger companies, it can kind of feel like the monolith just every day looks a little bit like the previous day. So how do you drive urgency around you know, caring about the customer, having intuition about the customer, having creativity around the customer. And so we talked to CLO executives about how do you do that? And the way to do that, frankly, isn't more numbers, which I think has been the process for the past decade and a half. You know, CEOs getting up in front of their whole company and saying, you know, this number is at 12%, but we really need to move it to 15%. And it's really hard to care about that, I guess, if, you know, it's in the abstract. But if you put up a video in front of your company and you show three of your users using your product and struggling, it's hard to watch. And you immediately want to go fix it. People are like, hey, I, that's, not, that's not the experience we create. That's not, the, that's not what I do for a living, right? I want that to be better. And so that's, that's what we talk to these C-level executives about is how do you create this, this urgency um, that we think you're kind of tapping into. Our belief isn't you have to go convince people to care about the customer. It's that you have to enlighten them on what the customer needs and that will create action. Definitely. And I think the uh, fascinating thing about what user testing is doing too is really showing the teams the why behind what they are doing. And the more you can get your teams identified and uh, connecting with the why, the more that they can feel motivated at work to get in flow states. And you know when they see that face of somebody that's uh, in pain using something that's supposed to alleviate it, that's uh, a powerful reminder. Are you getting, I know you're not traveling much anymore. Um, are you, so as a CEO of a fairly uh, large company, I think your, your team's around 900, right? No, we're actually about uh, 450. One of the things that happens on the internet is folks that participate on our panel sometimes <laughs> listed on their LinkedIn profile, but yeah, we're, we're about 450 people. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's still, it's a sizable team. So as a, as you're leading a team of 450 people and you're, you know, obviously you're doing a lot, you're getting trying to get out there and meet customers and, and do those things. Um, how are you thinking about budgeting your time and how are you thinking about getting your teams focused and aligned uh, in the era of remote working that we're in? Yeah, I, I really think about two really big things when it comes to getting the team aligned. Um, the first is communication. So I spend a lot of time on, on communicating. I, I write a weekly note to the whole company. I spend time uh, with a lot of all hands and Q&A and, and things like that. The other is really um, kind of to that same message. Um, I've believed for a long time in something I call organizational empathy, which is um, if the people you're working with, if they have some appreciation that it might not always be their priority, but the people around them are, are working hard and working on hard problems, it's amazing how much a team can accomplish together. And so to do that, I do two big things. One is I have a much broader kind of extended leadership team than most senior leaders do. And that's because I find if I bring people into the tent and they're watching the senior leadership team have real discussions about trade-offs in the business and what we need to do, it builds an awareness that when you know, someone on their team says, hey, how come marketing didn't do this? Or how come customer support didn't do this? Um, they can honestly say, well, like they have a lot going on. You know, they're doing this and they got this going on and this happening. Then even if it's not the answer that 
employee wants to hear, it's not there's this other team somewhere that are bad people that make horrible decisions. It's that there's a lot going on in a high growth pre-public tech company um, and everybody's making trade-offs and that they're a good team full of good people doing smart things. Um, that goes a really long way. It goes a long way into building what we call positive intent, just assuming that everybody has positive intent in what they're doing, that we're all trying to build a great customer-centric company together, solves a lot of noise in a high-growth company. So that's kind of one, one part of that. And then the second is the way I run my time is um, I actually break my calendar up into chunks of time by department. So you know I'll have like a two-hour marketing meeting every week. I ask my CMO to break that up into smaller meetings and actually bring the team members who are working on those projects to the meeting, not just the leaders of those projects. So if we're doing a, you know, a website redesign, don't just bring me the, you know, the head of Corpcom that's doing the website redesign, like bring some people on the team to the meeting and let's work on it together. So it's, it's not really, um, you know, you'll hear servant leadership talked about a lot. I think that's a little bit misleading. I don't think anybody fully believes they work for their employees because that, it's just kind of not the dynamic, to be honest. I think it's more participant leadership. What I like to do is feel like I'm participating on a bunch of these teams. I play a unique role. I'm, I'm the CEO of the company. I get to make decisions. Um, but if I'm participating in that example in the website redesign along the way, I'm sharing with the team my perspective and what things I think are important and what other things are going on in the company that should be part of it. Even if that's only a few times throughout that project, when we get to the end, I'm bought in. The team knows I've been participating. It's a lot easier for me to say, yes, let's launch this thing. And so I lean heavily into this idea of more people participating and me acting as a participant rather than just an end of the process approver. And I think that builds a lot of character across the team and understanding of what we're doing. I love that. Yeah. Anytime a leader is on the front lines, uh, even just for a little bit, it goes a long way. Um, I'm familiar with that in the military, but you definitely see it out here in Silicon Valley as well. It uh, inspires everyone. And Andy, when it comes to inspiring your teams or uh, inspiring yourself and your family, uh, how are you going about doing it? Do you have a learning routine? Are you getting out on the road bike occasionally? How are you staying fresh and uh, inspired? For me, the exercise uh, in the current environment of, uh, of social distancing is, is all come through uh, trying to keep my kids nice and tired, which is tough when everybody's got cabin fever. I've got... Uh, two boys are 11 and eight and a three-year-old little girl. And so uh, while we're all kind of doing homeschooling, if you will, during this or remote learning or whatever they're calling it, I'm, I'm like the PE teacher. So every little break I have, I'm running around outside playing basketball with them. I, I just think that kind of stuff is, is really important. It keeps us you know, motivated and, and, and healthy. Um, so that's a big part of that. And then, you know, for me, um, I, I really genuinely enjoy what I do for a living. Um, and so I, I get a lot of energy typically from the team. It's been hard for me. I'm an extrovert uh, not to be in the office. And so um, I'm really trying to leverage um, Slack and Zoom and remote capabilities to, to try to be connected to the team as much as I can. I've been hopping into the Zoom meetings for different teams for five, 10 minutes at the start just to say thank you and take questions. And part of it is I think that helps everybody feel uh, comfortable that this is a different time that we're in and, and we're all being flexible. But it's important to me because I get energy from from the team and from the, the people that I'm working with. Um, I've also used this as a unique opportunity to reconnect with uh, folks I care about that I just haven't gotten to stay connected to because the bar for, hey, let's go find a coffee and we're both busy executives and it's really tough to find schedules and travel and all that um, is really low now. It's like, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee each in our homes and get on a Zoom meeting for 20 minutes and reconnect. 
um, that's been super worthwhile. And I, it, again, as an extrovert, I think that's what gives me energy in the world is getting to connect with people and, and just see how they're doing. Yeah. And uh, connecting with people, not going to go out of style anytime soon. That's for sure. Andy, when it comes to advice, whether you're uh, getting it or giving it, are there any pieces that you've really carried with you through the years or that you find yourself giving to, uh, you know, aspiring executives or other CEOs? I, I talk a lot about authenticity. And what I mean by that isn't, um, you know, just being open. I think it's really thinking about, you know, what is it that gives you energy, you know, and, and how do you do more of that? Um, how do you solve problems? So I, I know that I have a certain way I think through problems. It's just the way my brain works. Um, and I've learned to just lean into that. Like, you know, I'm very clear. Here, here's how I'm going to think through this problem. And here's what I'm going to do. Um, I think that's really authentic when people know what works for them. Um, and, and then they can speak very plainly about it. The other thing I, I try to convey to the team regularly and, and other, um, you know, folks that will, will ask me for some coaching or some feedback is I'm amazed the number of people who know how to say something plainly and directly because they have a knowledge around it but get caught in this trap of trying to say it in a complicated way that sounds smarter. And I kind of view that as a middle management trap. When you get into senior management meetings, one of the things people are always surprised about when they get in their first like C-level meeting is how plain spoken everybody is, that they're, they're experts in what they do. They know what they're doing and they're just talking about it in a way people can understand. I think that's critically important to success. And so I'm always telling people, if you know what you're talking about, just talk about it. Just be clear. Wise words. Andy, if there is one final call to action, challenge, or anecdote that you'd like to leave with everybody today, uh, what would that be? Well, I think we've, you know, as we've talked about throughout this conversation, I mean, I really think in a world that's becoming increasingly digital, that empathy really matters. I, I believe that before I came to user testing, that's not a, a product pitch. That's part of what I thought was interesting about coming here. Um, I think we're proving that to be really true right now with what we're going through as a society. And you know, empathy matters. It can't just be that we're all numbers, we're all data, we're all personalization algorithms. People matter. And so I think anything that you can be doing to, to be more empathetic, to bring empathy into your life, to bring empathy with your customers, your colleagues, um, I think we all benefit from that. It makes the world a better place. So think about, you know, what you can do to be a more empathetic person and a more empathetic uh, partner with the people you work with. And I think you'll find it's very rewarding. I love it. Andy, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your journey with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, and I love the podcast. This is uh, it's a, it's a great show. So thank you for all the work you do on this. Awesome. Thanks, Andy. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.